everybody. Welcome again to our church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you haven't seen that movie, that is, uh, I think it's 10 years old now or so, roughly. Uh, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, which I'd highly recommend seeing at least once. I, I understand the perspective. And I kind of share this, Aletha and I do. We don't want Jim Caviezel's face to come to mind when we think of Jesus all the time. So I get that. I don't want to watch it every day kind of perspective. But uh, it is so good and so well done. Uh, it is the, the artistic license taken in it, I think, is uh, so complementary to what the scriptures tell us, and it's biblically faithful, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a shadow of the reality, but a shadow nonetheless that can help us really access what happened on the cross. So that clip is what we're going to look at today. That's actually the opening scene to the movie. Uh, it is about 12 hours before Jesus dies or starts to die on a cross, his prayer in Gethsemane, and to a degree, a battle with temptation uh, with, embodied by Satan there uh, in the clip as well. So I'll read that here from Matthew 26 here in a minute, but if you are new, we're in a greater series now in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. You can look at Jesus praying in a garden today, uh, verses 36 to 46. Uh, Jesus has uh, just finished dinner, his last supper before he dies. It was a Passover meal, which consisted of a very high point, remember, and a very low point. You're supposed to get that in the narrative here. Very high point, an exciting point, an extremely low point right after. The high point is Jesus just saying, I'm about to die on a cross for the sins of the world. He institutes communion, the Last Supper, so Christians from all over the world for the last 2,000 years, when they gather, they've done many things, but uh, primarily, or at least one of the things that they have done is they've gathered around bread and wine, and they've, they've eaten, and they've drank the wine in remembrance of Christ's death, to commemorate it and celebrate it, as Jesus says, in my body and through my blood, you have the forgiveness of sins. So we, we commemorate that it does something for us, like Peter talked about with that last song, it actually accomplishes a feat. It, it, it's a gift. It earns us something and it changes our status from sinner to found sinner by God, to one who's washed and redeemed. So it actually changes the status of a person. And we'll see that play out today here uh, a little bit as well, and especially as the series goes on. Comes out every week in the scriptures, no doubt, but we're going to see it play out narratively here as well. But, but that was the high point. Jesus is saying, I'm about to go to the cross, extremely somber and dark. Jesus says it's the hour of darkness as well. Happening overnight, his betrayal, his arrest, his, um, his uh, time before the councils and so forth, his trials, and ultimately at 9 a.m. the next day, he's going to go to the cross. But a lot of the next few weeks here will be something that, things that happen overnight, interactions with people and, and his accusers and, and uh, his desertion by the disciples and things like that. But in any case, huge high point at dinner. The New Testament's coming, the New Covenant is coming, where God is going to relate to lost, weak, and wounded sinners through what Jesus does on the cross. That's the only way. And so he's going to reach out and express love through this man who's the God-man, but particularly what he does on the cross. Without the cross, it's just God in the world and it's judgment time and it's bad news. But if he advocates for us as a human being as well, if, if he dies as a substitute, it's the best news you'll ever hear in your entire life, period. And so we have that. So we gather around that. So that's basically what he's teaching about and portraying and, and teaching and commanding the disciples to keep and all the church throughout history uh, as well. That's the high point. The low point, though, right after that is his disclosure that every one of the disciples will desert him. And so remember, Peter hears this, and, and all the disciples, this is something that all the disciples will experience, but Peter in particular, who speaks up a lot in the Gospels on behalf of the others, but here's on his own behalf, says, maybe them, but certainly not me. I will, I will never, even to the point of death, I will never betray you. But just hours later, he does uh, not just, well, not really betray, but deny. He denies him three times. And so Jesus, Jesus says that too. Before the rooster crows, before it's morning, 
you're going to deny me actually three. As you're trying not to, you're going to deny me uh, three times. And we will look at the fulfillment of that too, which is a little bit later in chapter 26. It was a split passage. So it had to happen to fulfill the prophecies about it and to demonstrate it's all Jesus doing this. It's not people. We're going to see that play out in today's passage as well. It's a repeated theme in all the Bible, constantly saying it's all about God. It's not about us. We don't save at all. God does the entire bit of saving. And so we see that just stated all over the scriptures in prepositional form, and we see it written out narratively here as well, the compliment. I love love the Bible for so many reasons, but I love that it does that. It doesn't just say it, it shows it. So we're going to see it shown here today as well, and we'll consult other parts of the New Testament to see how it's just said doctrinally uh, as well to fill in some of the gaps. So today's passage uh, picks up where we were then uh, last week, finishing supper and teaching on these matters about desertion and denial. It picks up in a place called Gethsemane, outside Jerusalem, outside the city on the Mount of Olives. We are in uh, Matthew 26 now, again, 36 to 46. Let's read that in full. Follow along on screen if you want or in your uh, inserts in your folders. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, it's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. All right, so the plan for today, do you guys know where I'm headed here? Similar to last week, if you were here, it's a, it's a repeated theme. The first part will be uh, by means of review primarily. Uh, we're going to look at this contrast that, again, the Bible constantly shows, I mentioned this before, between weak and wounded, incapable sinner and the triumph of Christ. And so this first part uh, being called the utter sleepy failure of the disciples. So again, just to, just to catch us up to speed here, what's going on? Just hours before his arrest, it's probably about 12 hours or so before he he's, dies on the cross, and probably even less, much less than that actually, but maybe even within the hour that he's arrested. He's in Gethsemane, and he takes his top three effective disciples with him to a different part of Gethsemane, in the Mount of Olives area outside of Jerusalem, to pray. And, and he says, I want you to remain here and watch with me and pray while he went a little bit further on to pray alone. Now, before we go on, I want to address this question of what does watching mean? Because it's kind of a nebulous term here. Uh, Jesus says, I want you to watch. We get the idea of prayer, but uh, what does watchfulness mean? I think there's two things probably going on here. The first is the most obvious, because in verse 41, he addresses it. 
He wants the disciples to watch against temptation. Watch that you don't enter into sin and enter into temptation themselves. Jesus is doing this, and we'll talk about that later, but he wants them to do it as well. Because remember, he just got done saying to all of them that all of you will sin, all of you will deny me. Amidst your best effort to the contrary, you will sin and you will leave me to fulfill the prophecies and because the flesh is weak, as he says here. And so even though it's technic, that, that piece to the story is technically unavoidable because the prophecies indicate this and he has to be rejected all the way to the cross to ensure, his, ensure that rejection and so forth, but especially because the prophecies indicate it, even though it's technically unavoidable, the spirit of what he's saying here is pray against a hard heart. Pray that you won't go the full measure of denying me on the level of Judas Iscariot, who, if you don't know who he is, one of the 12 disciples who in process at this point in the story is in the act of betraying him and disclosing where Jesus is to the chief priest. He's getting paid off for it, and next week we'll see them bring a whole band of people here to arrest, to arrest Christ. So you're going to deny me, but, but be watchful nonetheless against sin, basically is what it's intention here. Be watchful nonetheless, and don't go the full measure of denial that will lead you to full-blown betrayal and, and, and rejection of me for the rest of your days. So that's the one piece. Be watchful against temptation. Be watchful against sin. Pray with me. On another level, it's likely Jesus here just wants people around him. Remember, these, these are his best friends. These are his disciples. He's leading them. But in another sense, there, there's a friendship, a bond that's occurred between them, especially these, effectively, these top three disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he spends more time with than the other, the other nine. He's about to, as it says here, experience great sorrow. It's already beginning in the garden. Great sorrow. In fact, in another one of the accounts in the New Testament, it says that he was, as he was praying, he was sweating great drops of blood from his forehead. You kind of see it in the movie clip. It's a little bit dark, but they did have it. If you see up close, they have his sweat looking dark. It's a bloody sweat, and, and beads of it are, are coming off his cheeks and, and falling heavily on the ground. It's a very rare medical condition uh, known as uh, hematidrosis, where blood vessels around a person's sweat glands under extreme, extreme duress burst. And so with the sweat uh, comes blood as well out of uh, an individual's, especially facial area, but it could be all over the body. So Jesus' physical agony is beginning here. He's not even arrested yet, but his physical agony and his emotional and spiritual agony is beginning. His suffering is starting. And it's likely that Jesus here in part just asks for some of his friends to be close to him, to help him prepare for what's to come, and to watch against sin, to watch against temptation, and to watch for his betrayer Judas, who's just right around the corner at, uh, at this point. As the passage ends, look, arise, see, as I told you, my betrayer is at hand. So it's basically what's going on in, in summary to put all of what we read a little bit in more of a summative form. But what, what do the disciples do? Jesus says, I want you to be with me. I want you to watch with me and pray with me. Help me prepare essentially and to be close and to watch against sin yourself and temptation yourself. This is a dark, dark hour. But what do they do? They fall asleep. They conk out. The Spirit's willing, Jesus says, but the flesh is very, very weak to accomplish what the Spirit's willing to do. And so the picture we talked about last week, especially if you weren't here, but if you were, this is great review, but the picture we got last week looking at Peter's denial of Jesus three times, even as he said, I'm not going to do it, even as he said, I'm trying as hard as I can not to do it, amidst that, he still denies. The spirit we're getting here 
the picture we're getting here narratively is that even as people who have this willingness, and they do, they begin by trying, these people who have spiritual willingness can't overcome sin. It's true for all of us. This came up last week again. We looked at Peter when he promises and vows and oaths to Jesus never to deny him. But again, hours later, he does it. He does it three times. Here we're seeing the same thing play out with Jesus saying the spirit it had, does have that good willingness, but the flesh is, is weak to make it happen. So in other words, we're very conflicted people. And this is true for just human beings in general, but I think especially for Christians, we, we have that bit of split personality going on. We're in our old selves, dead in our sins. In, in this new self that God gives us, though, in a new heart, we have this, especially this willingness. You could say it's a broad thing for all humans in one sense, but especially for Christians who have the Holy Spirit implanted in their hearts and God himself lives in the hearts of the redeemed and he's prompting, wooing, calling, enabling love and good deeds at the same time. And you see it play out a lot like in the Apostle Paul's writings, for example, where there's a lot of this inner conflict, inner turmoil of, I want to do this, I'm willing, but I find myself doing the complete opposite as I'm still trying to do it. And of course, God is able to do much good in the hearts of the redeemed as well and does, but there's still that inner ter- turmoil and conflict. Even as we're trying to do the contrary, we, uh, we still, still engage in it. Romans 7 is big on this. I'll read it again. mentioned it last week, but the Apostle Paul wrote this, another New Testament passage. Paul is testimonially getting at this. It's part of his story as a Christian. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And we are the same. This is a microcosm experience of this human spiritual condition. We're seeing written out here in Romans 7 and play out dramatically in Matthew 26. We sin, we betray, we sleep, we break promises, we fail. But moreover, the call sometimes to action is the very thing that leads us to that spiritual sleep. Just like Jesus is doing here. Don't sleep. On all things, don't sleep. Stay awake with me. Pray and watch. But what do they do as they're beginning to try to do that? Their eyes are heavy, it says, and they fall asleep. One way I see this play out, and I know know my life as a parent, uh, and I'll just share this for all of you newer parents or parents-to-be, parenting fail. I don't know if you did this too, Aletha, but this is one of my parenting fail moments when I had a Jane was one and a half, I guess. She's eight now. But uh, I had my laptop out one day working, and I thought, this is a teachable moment for my kids. So I'm going to teach her what buttons not to press on the computer. So, Jane, don't hit this button. That, that's the, if you hit any button, don't hit this one, because I'll turn the computer off, and I might be working. So just don't hit that button. It's like a one and a half year old. What am I doing? Because what's the kid going to do? He's, she, he or she's going to press that button, Right? She wasn't doing anything wrong until I told her not to hit the button. And then she, she keeps hitting the button after that. So it, it was the, the act of saying don't do that enabled the doing. You guys see that? It's the same for us as adults. This is why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says elsewhere that sin existed in the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell and, and disobeyed God and, and broke his will and, and went their own way, became their own God. Sin entered the world. So sin was there. But when God gave the Ten Commandments to people, when he gave all the do's and don'ts, sin got to be a bigger problem because we couldn't do it. It's it's like constant don't touch the button lifts. And all we can think about is, i got to touch that button. I don't want to do it, but I have to touch the button. So sin got bigger so that people would start to look elsewhere other than moral command and law to save. 
That's the, whole, that's the, the main point of the law in the Bible. It's not to be this epitome of Christian spirituality or godliness, but to imprison and make the problem much, much worse. So we'll look back to God to save, not to religion and spirituality. So again, back here, it's a lot of times in the context of being told not to do something or to do something that our, our true spirituality comes out and we realize that we're much more broken than we realized at first. Jesus says, resist temptation, the disciples sleep. It doesn't just happen in the context of them saying resist temptation, they, they fall asleep. But that maxim there, we've we got to make sure we, we don't avoid that, we embrace that, and we see that play out narratively here. Something beyond ourselves, beyond moral command is needed to change us. That's, at that point, if, if there's just a period after this first part, that first prayer, that first, the disciples are asleep, are you kidding me at that moment? If there was a period and the story ended there, extremely bad news. But it goes on. Our gaze goes elsewhere. Our focus goes elsewhere. Where? Christ. And so he takes tenor stage. We'll move on now to the next part which is the triumph of Christ. So this is the, the dark background of Peter and James and John and the whole human race with them against the bright foreground of Christ triumphing in his obedience and his desire to do the will of God and his procession to the cross where he dies for the sins of the world. So the question then is the same as last week. The question is, how are we seeing the disciples as that dark background against which Jesus' triumph shines all the brighter. How does this particular passage play into that a little bit differently, but complementary, complementarily uh, to last week's as well? And really, uh, you could say that we've preached this sermon every single Sunday since Matthew began, because it's always, always, always the message of the Bible. I think what helps add to the, the contrast, I'm going to back up here just a little bit, and go elsewhere for a moment, but what, what helps to add to the contrast between sinner and Jesus, sinful humanity and the Christ, is an understanding where all of this is taking place. The geography of where all of this, this battle is occurring and this pre-cross meditation and prayer and, and sorrowfulness unto death that Jesus is going through. So where it takes place, again, we looked at that already, but it's happening in Gethsemane. Gethsemane is uh, actually transliterated directly from the Greek here. Uh, it sounds the same, but it means oil press, and it's a location. So we know then that it was an olive tree orchard. Uh, another one of the gospel accounts, John 18.11, gets more explicit at this and says, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley into the Mount of Olives area. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So it's an olive tree orchard. It's a garden that Jesus has this type of temptation, has this type of wrestling with what's about to happen. So then the question becomes, why in the world is that significant, if at all? Or maybe backing up a little bit and say, is God sovereign over these details? Is he in control of how this is expressed in the scriptures? And the answer is yes. He's a very intentional God. The way he writes narrative especially, every detail is there for a reason. So if we ask that question, why is it important that's happened in a garden? Why is Jesus' temptation, his overcoming of that temptation ultimately, and his procession to the cross subsequently, uh, an important garden-like event rather than, say, somewhere else in Jerusalem or Bethany or a different smaller village outside of the city. And the answer has to do with the fact that the Bible speaks, like it so often does, about another garden earlier in the storyline. This garden was called Eden. After God made the first two people, he placed them in a garden, it says, and it was, he called it Eden, where Adam and Eve lived 
And they were also tempted by Satan, the snake, the serpent, to disobey the will of God, to deny him, to rebel and take up arms against him, to be their own deities, to sin, and to earn death. And they did. In a lot of ways, then, I think I've said this before in prior sermons recently, but Adam and Eve are really being called in that story, if you're, if you're unaware of it, called in that story to do what Satan did. Satan, originally, Lucifer, was an archangel of God uh, who was created to serve him and, and to worship him and to be, a, to be a helper to all those that are created after him and so forth. And, but he rebelled because he didn't want God to get all the fame. He wanted the fame for himself. And he's tempting people away to be like him. Be satanic. Be demonic. Be like me. Be an adversary. Be one that takes up arms against God. You don't need him. He, he says that you do, but you don't. It's, he's lying to you. You just need yourselves. You can determine good and evil on your own, and you'll be fine. Of course, he's lying through his teeth, but in fact, some of them are half-truths, which makes it all the more wicked. But in any case, he's lying, and he leads them away to earn that death, which was the ultimate punishment for sin. And they did spiritually die first, and then physically, of course, later. But in any case, going back to Matthew 26 then with that Genesis 3 passage in mind, the Bible is effectively a tale of two gardens and a tale of two Adams. So I have a chart here to depict that, uh, which I'll talk about here a little bit more in a second. But Jesus' actions here then occurring in a garden tell us a ton of things theologically as the foreground to that background. This is how the story started on the left and this is how the story ended and is still affecting the world positively today uh, on the right side. So Jesus' actions of being tempted in a garden like Adam before him tells us that he's going to right all wrongs. It tells us that at least he's about to reverse what happened through Adam, bringing a curse into the world. As the first man, Jesus is like the ultimate second man now, through whom a new creation will come into earth. He's that new and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, a much tougher garden than Eden, and who is bringing blessing to the world, not a curse. Romans 5.19 says here in the bottom, uh, this is not just conjecture, this is something the New Testament points out explicitly, always making connections, or frequently anyway, between Adam and Jesus, who the Bible calls a second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. But here in Romans 5, it gets at the obedience idea as well, the contrast idea between the two. It says, So by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's Adam. By his disobedience, all of us were made sinners because we're all from him. We're born into the world in his bloodline. Just like that, though, so by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. So Christians then, by his obedience, by what he does for us on the cross, we inherit purity. We inherit a washing from sins. We become his children, no longer children of the devil, but children of the second Adam, children of the Son of God who are cleansed by his actions. One of the reasons why I wanted to, a lot of this is pretty self-explanatory, the, the contrast here, but with that third row in particular, one of the reasons why I wanted to show the movie clip today was I think it got a little bit more explicit for us, almost an interpretive help in a way, on how exactly Jesus was being tempted in the garden. Because it doesn't say in Matthew 26, right? It just says that he was praying against temptation, being watchful against temptation, and encouraged his disciples to be uh, the same. What the movie does, the, the clip there, is it, is it personifies that evil in Satan being a tempter of Christ, to not go through with it. And we know that whether Satan was actually in the garden or not, we don't know, but we do know that Satan did converse with Jesus earlier in Matthew. He did have a conversation with him in Matthew 4. 
And when he talked with Jesus there, basically what he was doing is tempting him three different times to embrace his divinity over and against his humanity. Embrace his divinity, his godness, over and against his humanity. So, for example, he says, you're hungry, you've been fasting for 40 days, just speak to these rocks, they'll turn into bread. And Jesus quotes scripture against it and remains obedient to the will of God. Basically, rejecting and resisting that call to embrace his godness over and against his humanity. Because he had to become human. He had to, basically, go the way of the cross. It's really what he's doing. Satan is saying, don't go the way of of self-emptying. Don't go the way of suffering. Don't go the way of your humanness. Go the way of your godness. Embrace power now. Even obey, follow down and obey me, he says afresh, which is a very Adam-like temptation that we see back in Genesis 3 as well. But he's basically saying, don't go the way of the cross. So if he's, if he's being tempted by Satan there, it's, it's perfectly fine to, to uh, see that story play forward in Matthew 26 as well and say, in what way was he being tempted? Because he clearly was being tempted. He was being tempted to not go that way of the cross in his humanness. Jesus resists him there in Matthew 4. He resists him similarly here as well. And he's obedient unto death, as Philippians 2, 2 says. Hebrews 10, 5 to 10 as well. One other place I want to take you on this idea, and, and I, um, I want you to understand that when we start talking about, on one level, we, we see this Adam and second Adam correlation and how the first was not obedient, the second was perfectly obedient. On one level, that's a general biblical truth. On another level, when the Bible talks about obedience and being passionate for the will of God and submissive to him, it talks about it in a very, very honed-in specific manner. It's not general obedience. When it talks about obedience, it's always obedience unto death. Always obedience under the cross. We have to have that or the storyline doesn't make sense in parts. Jesus' obedience is not just a general, I'm doing what God wants me to. It's a specific, I'm going to the cross like God the Father wants me to. So one of the ways we see that play out is in Hebrews 10, 5 to 10 which I'll read here now and then comment a little bit on it. But notice how the idea of the obedience of the one who comes to want to do the will of God is in focus and how cross-centered and sacrificial it is with the language that surrounds it. Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting from Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So it's actually kind of a tricky passage to understand and he's quoting Psalm 40, but basically, just to kind of blow the fog away from this here, there's a lot to say about it. He's basically noting the author is a prophetic relationship of movement from Old Testament animal sacrifice to one who says, behold, I have come to do your will. There's movement from the old, the shadows, to one who would come in the line of David. David wrote Psalm 40, it's being quoted to say, a body you've prepared for me. And through that person's obedience, a New Testament will come into the world. The old will be abolished for the sake of the second. Old to New Testament, animal sacrifice, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. The former, the lesser, to the better, the greater, the eternal. So we've seen this actually right back in the Old Testament in a psalm. He's saying right here in the psalm we have 
Jesus, basically beforehand, raising his hand, saying, Behold, I have come as the Son of God to do your will and to be obedient unto the point of death. What I want you to see in relation to Matthew 26, though, today is that obedience, I'm here to do your will, O God, which sounds a lot like this prayer, right, in the garden. It's a lot like Jesus saying, not my will, but your will be done. And as Philippians 2 again says elsewhere in the New Testament, being obedient, not just obedient, but being obedient to the point of, to the point of death. And so what we've been saying here for the past several minutes is that Jesus' obedience, and I'll, I'll put it in the words of a few different passages here, Romans 5, Matthew 26, today's passage in Hebrews 10 we just read, to give you different angles on this, it's all over the scriptures, that Jesus' obedience and his desire to do the will of God is to go the way of the cross. It's not random obedience. The way of suffering is what he's choosing and what God the Father is wanting for his son in the world, as terrible as it is. And it's an understatement too, right? It's an understatement of understatements to say it's the way of suffering. And so we have to kind of back up here. And Gethsemane, I think, is really helpful, this passage, in helping set the stage for how bad the cross was because his agony is beginning. And we don't get that. When we see, like, for example, and I think it's John, I want to say John 19, where it says, and then they crucified him, period. we just like, well, that happened, but what does that mean? Right? It's like we don't live in a culture of crucifixion, so we just read over that and we just conclude, well, he died. And maybe it was kind of torturous, but it just kind of happened. But for a culture of crucifixion, it, it, it was like a, this ultimate hyperlink to click onto and you start spinning off of. That's why the movie is so helpful, by the way, too. We just don't understand what God went through for us. We just don't. It's true for all of you in the room right now, and it's true for me. We just don't get it. We don't know how much pain he went through. And Gethsemane is starting to, starting to typify the cross and prepare the way for this ultimate agony that he is going to go through. He says, for example, in today's passage, he's sorrowful even unto death. He's saying, I'm so sorrowful I could have a heart attack and die right now. It might happen. I could just die right now. I'm so sad. He's sweating blood off of his face. He's being abandoned by his friends, deserted by them. He's about to bear the sins of the world on his shoulders, being tortured on a cross for six hours, slowly suffocating to death. Again, his agony is beginning here. He went through unspeakable amounts of pain, not just because it happened, but he did it for us. Like the song we're going to sing later, for us, he bore shame. For us, he was obedient unto death. And for the glory and restoration of the fame of God as well, to be obedient to him. It's a big package, but he loves us, and his love is one of the main things driving him here. And it is starting here. So Gethsemane, this passage is really helpful for us to get a feel. This is the Son of God. This is a guy who's been so resolved up to this point about this is going to happen here, then this is going to happen, then this passage of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled perfectly. I'm going to die on Passover. And he's been very resolved, predictive of the future, and very stoic in a good sense of the word. And then here, in his godness, you could say he's like that, but in his humanity, he has this natural almost shrinking back, saying, does this have to happen? If possible, can you remove this cup of judgment and wrath and, and, and suffering that I'm about to drink? Is there another way? We'll come back to that in a second. But you see, you see that godness and the humanity of Christ come perfectly together. He's both. He's not a ghost just floating through this, unable to feel pain. He's human, like you and me, though also God. 
And so even by praying, you know, three times here, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me, it's telling us the cup imagery in the Old Testament always meant the wrath of God. So when he's bearing sin, what, what the substitute Jesus is doing on the cross is he's bearing punishment for sin, sin that, that we deserve. He's bearing wrath against it, judgment against it. He's absorbing that as the ultimate sacrificial lamb for us. But secondly, what we see is he knows how terrible it's going to be. It's the worst death anybody's ever died, ever, throughout all of history. It's the most shameful, most torturous, most painful, and he knows that, and so he's sweating blood and almost dying in his prayer right there. He's so sorrowful. So really what we have here, to go back to the contrast idea, is uh, we have incredibly bad news. If we look at this from a human perspective, if, if any of you are human here today, like me, that, then we have incredible bad news and incredibly good news in one passage, one idea, that we are human like Peter. We are human like the disciples who fall asleep in their sin and are lying on their backs, impotent. But, Here's the hope. What, and we know the end of the story. But if you read up to this point, you don't know the end. Here's, here's the glimmer of hope. What if God became a human being? What if God didn't just like float around and kind of look human, but didn't become human? Uh, what if he actually became human and walked around and resisted Satan perfectly, unlike Adam before us? And what if that accomplished salvation for us? What, what if he actually invited us into that experience and, and, and gave the hope of a new creation associated with him rather than the first Adam, the first people, the first Adam and Eve that were created. What if that happened? Of course it did. But this is a question of what, what if it happened, hope above all hopes, right? And so the fact that he's human here is incredibly, incredibly good news. If God is just God, there's no atonement for sin because he has to become like what he dies for. He has to, be, he has to associate with what he ultimately advocates for. He has to die as a human for humans. He can't just die as a manifestation of a human, though deity, for the sake of... There's too much otherness between us and God, the scriptures say. He had to become like his brothers, Hebrews 2 said, to die as that ultimate wrath-deterring sacrifice in love for the sins of the world. So, really bad news, we're like Peter and the disciples in our sin. Even when we're trying to do good, we do evil. Sin's that bad. But what if God became a human and was perfect? and walked among us, and loved us, and died as one of us in our place. Hope above all hopes. So again, this is where his obedience is leading him. This is where the desire to do the will of God is leading. It is always the way of the cross. Even now in the garden, before he's even arrested, the cross is starting to happen. All right, so what does this mean for us? aside from everything I just mentioned, I guess. <laughs> but what else? Uh, let's not bury the lead here, is, is the idea. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago a different passage. It's a great idea. It's easy to do when we interpret the Bible. We, we can focus on a tree or the minutia and make that the lead on the front page of the newspaper of interpretation. And we bury the more important thing on the 10th page. You've got to be careful not to do that. Very easy to do when we interpret the Bible. So like last week, we're discovering... That the takeaway here is not as simple as saying, be like Jesus, be obedient like Jesus. Uh, and I think there's something to be said about things like, we didn't talk about this much today, but modeling our prayers after the way Jesus prays here by always tacking on, let your will be done. 
think it's a very helpful teaching. It's not bad to say something like that and to glean something like that from passages like this. Do you pray that way? Do we pray at the end of our prayers, God, you may want something that I don't want for my life. Help me to be okay with that. You may want death for me. You may want suffering for me. You may want to take something away from me so that I'll want you all the more and stop worshiping this thing. Let you, I want, it's good to pray, pour out your heart before God, but then pray, let your will be done in my life. Great model prayer. But if we make that the lead, we've missed the main point. Because notice Jesus doesn't sit down here after he, after he prays and wakes the disciples up. Right before Judas comes around the corner and says, all right, children, let's gather up. And here's the moral of the story. You know, Gallus Flanagraph or anything. He doesn't do that, right? He, it's just story. There's no imperative or command here. So we're always inferring meaning. We also have to ask the bigger question, what does this mean for me? What's the theology behind it? Is it more than history? Is it just history? Is it theological history? How does the Bible read itself? The answer to that question is a much bigger thing than what we're doing today. But the broad answer is it always reads the gospel, always. Great practice for you guys if you've never read the Bible this way before is to look at all the times the Old Testament's quoted in the New and look at the common theme. It's always Jesus. It's always, this is not about us, it's about him doing something outside of us to save. And just note the patterns. And then read the Bible in the same way that they do. Because it's, the Bible tells us how to, how to read it. In the similar capacity that we just did with the two gardens idea. Or the two Adams idea. The Bible does that for us, we just need to keep in step with that way of reading as well to get true meaning out of it. So again, we're discovering the takeaway here is not just as simple as saying, be like Christ, because... We've seen where, where, where hard moral effort gets people these last two weeks. In Peter's case, with his denial, not through the night. And in this case, not through the hour. They just fall on their backs and sleep. So what is the point then? The ultimate point, the greater headline. There's some subheads here that are helpful on an emulative kind of, kind of stance. But what's the main point? The main point is we are not the Christ. We are the sleepy, on our backs, sinners here. And Jesus is the awake one. He's the obedient one. He's the one who's beginning to go through agony here before his arrest. Remember, this is just story. This is just happening in the world, which we can look at and say, I believe it occurred. I believe it did something for me or not. But what we can't say right from the passage is that Jesus wants me to be perfect like him. We just don't have that else anywhere in the scriptures but here as well. But regardless, he is the one who's beginning to go through agony here before Judas comes around the corner and the chief priests and, and the, the band of individuals with him arrest him. He's the one doing the will of God. He's the one who's going to drink the cup of God's wrath, the one who's resisting Satan for you as the new and better Adam. This is really about belief in him, in other words. This is about God doing something in the world to reverse the curse that Adam brought into the world. One little linguistic thing we saw, I don't have a slide for this actually, but back in Hebrews 10, we saw that it, it says Jesus' oh, obedience is the thing that sanctifies us. It says, and actually uses the word that. That obedience is what sanctifies you or, or makes you holy or makes you clean. So it, it's, an, it's, an, it's a type of obedience that's outside of you. That obedience over there is what did something for me. Not obedience in here. The, the, the end point there isn't therefore be obedient or try to be obedient as best as you can like him. It's no, there's no obedience. It happened entirely outside of you in a different person. That because of, because of going to the cross, that type of obedience, it actually changes our status and, and saves. And, and lastly, one, for, one final question about 
what else does, does the prayer of Christ tell us about the gospel, uh, these matters? Again, on topic, just different angle on this. And I'll pose it in form of a question. When Jesus prayed, if possible, take this cup from me, did God the Father answer that prayer? What do you guys think? Did God answer that prayer to his son? Or did he turn a deaf ear? Answered it, right? Of course, he answers, always answers prayer. Even if it's no or wait, he always answers prayer. Especially for his son, right? But what was his answer? His answer was no. It's not possible. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to God. So if it helps, flip this on its head and look at the, look at the contrast to it. What did God not say in answer to this prayer? Didn't say, yes, there is actually. I forgot. There is another way. Stop the, stop the presses. You know, let's just halt everything here and, and reconfigure what I'm, what I'm doing in the world. He didn't say, yes, there is another way. If you tell everybody to be, to be good and try harder, then they'll be saved. If you, start, if, you start, if you start teaching a bit more about being happier and doing more and being more obedient like you and stop sleeping so much, then, then they can be saved, right? He does not say it or any version of that. He says, no, it's not possible. The only way for people to be saved is for God to do something in the world. That's it. The only way to be saved is for Jesus to be obedient for us, you and me, to be passionate for the will of God, which is sacrificial love. That's the only way. You know, if, if anything, the, the, the players that we are in the story are sleepy sinners on our back. I love this image, too, at the end. It's kind of, this is what happened. If you are, any of you are Christians here today, like myself, this is what happened. When God, when God saved us, he found us asleep on our backs in our sin, doing nothing productive or good, and he said, rise, come away with me and walk with me. What did he not find? The disciples aren't praying their guts out in obedience to Jesus, right? They're asleep. I mean, it's like, I love the, way, the dramatic elements of these stories. I mean, they're not even awake. They're not even awake and just kind of praying. They're asleep so that we have absolutely no room for we save ourselves. Absolutely no room for that doctrine. Only God saves by grace. Only God does it. We don't. Even if we're called to, called to be good, we can't. So that the narrative element here is so freeing and so good, so humbling and offensive at the same time. But what we need to embrace if we are to be saved. In fact, if we're under the delusion that we're good people to our core, you know, you will be kept from Jesus more by the idea that you're good than your bad things that you do. If we, if we live under the delusion that we're, that we're you know, the self-perception that we're good, very, very wicked people who are worse people than you will enter the kingdom ahead of you, or me, that's my perspective, because they actually see their, their evilness and their sin. It is always good, goodness, this perceived I'm okayness, religiosity, that keeps people away from Christ, not, or I should say, more than all the bad things that they've done. So in, in light of that, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing a mini-resurrection happen. Are you saved? Jesus walked among you when you were sleeping in your sins, just dead. And he looked at you and loved you. And he called you to be awake with him. He's the only awake one, not us. Let's stop living under the delusion that we are and remember that Christ is alone, awake, and obedient, and good, and loving. And that he alone calls to us in our stupor. And he makes us alive to be with him.
He says to us, and I'll end with this, this is the invitation here, and it's the invitation here in the room. God says, I love you through this passage. In this passage, he says, here's my son. Look what he's done for you. He says, he's the only obedient one who will and has died for you, who's gutted evil and who's remade the world, starting with our own hard hearts. I love you. Receive me. I've died in your place, and I do it again. And this is the gift of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Don't cheapen it by adding to it. Just make it bigger in your mind. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, today, for Matthew 26, the gospel of Matthew 26, the cross-anticipated works-based righteousness uh, being the epitome of sin, being the thing that is the antagonist, really, in the story, the thing that Jesus contrasts himself with. God, help us to live accordingly in the sense that we see this contrast and we, we see how bright you are and how dark we are and we run to the light. And God, we thank you, among many other things from this passage, that you, when you save, walk among sleepy dead people and you call them up to make them alive by grace so that we cannot boast. We cannot say we were awake, we prayed, we were obedient, we were semi-good. All we can say is we were sleeping and God woke me up in love. Praise be to God forever that that's the type of God, the only God who exists is that type of God, a good God like that. God, encourage us, equip us to think similarly, to worship and be thankful, and uh, to, if anything, uh, be prompted by that idea to love and good deeds, uh, not alone. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.
should take. 